We're going to read this morning from Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 11 through 26. Last week we started a deeper dive into uh, a new series that we're calling Faith Explosion, and we're mining out principles from Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 about the explosive growth that we see in the very first church, the first church of Jerusalem. And uh, how, the question that's kind of lurking behind this is, how did the Christian movement go from a persecuted minority to the point where three centuries later it was the dominant faith of the known world that was beginning to spread and grow rapidly. And so we're looking from some of those early signs of what caused their faith to explode and to expand in, in a, uh, a widespread global fashion. Acts 3, starting with verse 11. While the men held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our, our, our own power of, or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But that is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus." Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. I'm going to ask you to join me uh, in a prayer for just a moment. And uh, I want you to know that we're praying for the family of Beth Solari. Uh, we've been praying for her mom, uh, Joan Cahill, the last few weeks. Joan passed away late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning. Uh, she was 88, but we're praying for Beth and her family, her sons Charlie and James, who've been on our worship team and our production team, along with Beth for the last few years. And uh, services are planned for um, early November, uh, but uh, Joan was a, a very faith-filled, cheerful woman, and she's gone home to Jesus. Father God, thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning. We come for so many reasons. We come to renew our faith in you. We come to worship with others who share our faith. 
Some come to investigate and seeking information about whether the Christian faith is credible and, and worth putting their, their trust and faith in. Some come because we have formed this habit and we know that uh, being in the presence of other people who are looking into your word and who are open with their faith in you encourages us. We want to grow. We, we, we want to learn more. We want to know more how to follow you, how to live out our faith, how to walk together in the days that we have. This morning we pray for the Cahill Solari family and we ask that you will wrap them up in your consoling arms, that you will bring healing and, and hope over time. And we thank you for Joan's life. We thank you for her faith. We thank you for the five or six years that she was a part of our fellowship. We thank you for the way that her understanding grew as she put her nose inside the Bible and began to pour over the Scriptures. And thank you for the hunger that you gave her to understand more. Thank you for the faith that has spread throughout her family and for using her influence that way. Guide us this morning as we seek to mine out principles that would help us understand why the church was so effective in the past and why we may still be greatly effective in your name in the present. Thank you for, for guiding us in this time, for meeting us here. Thank you for every person in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Joe Stoll, the former president of Moody Bible Institute, tells a story of finishing up an early morning run with a trip to a local Starbucks to buy coffee for himself and his wife. He'd gotten up early to go on his run, and he knew that his wife would just be waking up, and so he thought he, that she would enjoy this surprise. He was glad when he got to the coffee shop and realized that it had just opened, which meant there wouldn't be a long line that particular morning. And he knew this because he saw only one person who was standing ahead of him instead of the, the normal long line of customers that he would see there. Thinking that this would be a quick trip in and out, his hopes were quickly dashed when the only customer ahead of him started arguing with the server. Now, the man wanted to buy a New York Times. He didn't want coffee. He wanted the New York Times. And he was waving a $50 bill. So what that meant was they hadn't cracked open the cash register yet. They didn't have a lot of smaller bills. And the, the server knew that he'd wipe out all the change he had if this guy only used a $50 bill to buy the newspaper. But the man was arguing because he thought he should be served the way that he wanted to be served on the spot. Joe figured that he could relieve the tension. And he said to the server, never mind him. I'll pay for his newspaper. And the man began to walk out. And, and Joe got into a conversation with the server at that point. And, and the server said to him, Mr., that was a really nice thing for you to do. This world would be a, a lot better place if more people were like you. Well, that comment caught Joe off guard. He instantly thought that he should deflect the praise in that comment and in some way send glory to God. But no words came out. Nothing that seemed to make sense was forming on his tongue and he walked out of the coffee shop frustrated that he had failed to say something about why he had done what he'd done. He thought, well, this world would be a lot better place if more people were like Jesus because he's the one who taught me to do something like that. He turned around, thought he'd go back into the, the coffee shop and say that to the man who was behind the counter, but by now there's a long line of people that had begun to line up, and he realized that it was going to take too long, his coffee would be cold by the time he got there, and he'd be tying up this man's time when now he had a whole bunch of people to serve. And so he walked away feeling like a failure. 
He would have to settle for acting like Jesus, even if he didn't find the words to glorify Jesus with his praise. And he hoped that somehow that would be enough. Now, here's the point of that story. Sometimes we get to act like Jesus, and that's all we get to do. Sometimes we get to give glory to Jesus with our words of praise. Once in a while, everything lines up that we get to do both at the same time. The way that Peter and John pull this off in the section of Scripture that we're looking at this morning is a great example of what I would call resurrection preaching, where they act in the way that Jesus taught them to act, but they also give praise to Him with the words that they're able to say. We're in a series that we're calling Faith Explosion. It looks at principles that contributed to the spread of Christian faith in the earliest years of the Christian church. This morning's message is part two in that series. I'm calling it Resurrection Preaching. So welcome to North River Church this morning. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for taking time to worship God and to learn with us. If you're new to North River, I hope that you will feel uh, warmly welcomed as a guest who, who belongs here and who we want here, and hopefully we will treat you well enough that you will come back again. I'm glad to see so many of my friends who are here at our Pembroke Worship Center, and I also want to extend that welcome to everybody who is watching online this morning. You are part of our congregation too. Thank you for making your home, your living room, or your kitchen an extension of North River's campus today. And if you find these services helpful, I hope that you will invite a friend. For all of the years that we have been meeting together, word of mouth has been our best advertising. Find a friend to come with you or to watch with you online. There are some simple ways that you can connect with us and come out of the shadows and become known. You can go to our website and look at northriverchurch.org forward slash visit, and there's a connection card that will drop down. You can fill that out online. That ends up on my desk. Or if you're here today in the room, you can go over to the welcome desk that's across the lobby, ask for a connection card, and uh, again, that ends up on, on my desk and we begin the conversation. Or if all those fail, just send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org. Here is our, our mission statement for who we are as a church. Helping people who are far from God become fully developed worshipers and servants of Christ. One of the things that we'll see is that the crowd that began to respond to the miraculous healing that Peter and John did with this man who had been born lame leads to that kind of process where people who had not been claiming the name of Jesus are moving toward becoming worshipers and servants of Christ. The question that I have behind this morning's message is this. What impact does the resurrection have in an age of skeptics? That was true back then in the first century. It is even more true today in our age as we see our society moving away from uh, organized religion, away from Christian movement. Even though we're still a majority here in the United States, there's a rise, a continuing rise, that is beginning to match what's been going on in Canada, Canada and Europe where there's a, an increasingly growing uh, facet of people who have rejected Christian faith and moved beyond it. They call this the post-Christian age. So you and I are increasingly living out our faith in a challenging time, and all the predictions of the forecasters is that within our lifetime, perhaps within about 20 years, we will become a minority here in the United States rather than a majority culture. That is a fascinating change. How does Christian faith survive and even thrive in an environment like that? That's the kind of stuff that we see happening back in the first century church. I'd like to focus on a few things that resurrection teaching, 
does in a, in a body of people. First, it adds glory to the story. Verse 13 says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. This is a statement that Peter made in that early speech in Jerusalem. The resurrection, he says, added glory to the story and to the reputation of Jesus. What does it mean when it says that God has glorified his servant Jesus? What does it mean to be glorified? The free dictionary lists that or describes that this way that to be glorified means to give glory, honor, or high praise to exalt someone. In the case of Jesus, Acts 3.13 is stating that Jesus was exalted or lifted up to a higher level by God himself. The Collins English Dictionary adds this thought, caused to seem more important or splendid, worshiped, praised, or extolled. The second thing we learn from verse 13 is God himself was the one who glorified Jesus. Through the resurrection, God exalted Jesus. Through the resurrection, God caused him to seem more important, splendid if we apply that definition. Through the resurrection, God caused Jesus to be worshiped, praised, and extolled. This is what it means when we read that God glorified Jesus. Other people were talking about his name, and they were lifting him up, and his reputation was growing because of the miracle that they had seen worked out there on the streets of Jerusalem. When we talk about or teach about the resurrection, in other words, Jesus is exalted every time. We acknowledge that he is more splendid than any other religious figure because all the rest of them died. They were put to rest in a grave and they stayed dead once dead. We acknowledge that Jesus is more important because only Jesus is glorified this way. We acknowledge that Jesus is more splendid because Jesus was raised from the tomb and from the grave. Teaching about Jesus being raised from the grave produces a spirit of awe and worship in people. So we look back into this scenario in Acts chapter 3. A crowd gathered that day because Peter invoked the name of Jesus in calling a lame man to get up and walk. Now this man had never walked. He'd been born without the ability to use his legs that way. And the people saw this formerly lame man soon walking and jumping and praising God. Many of the people who were around there that day who gathered did not follow Jesus at that point, and some had even been at Jesus' trial. So when Peter connected this healing with the power of the resurrection, this was their first encounter with resurrection preaching or resurrection teaching. Acts 4 verse 4 tells us that many of these skeptics heard and put their faith in Jesus on that same day after listening to what Peter and John had to say. This is why we are examining the impact of resurrection teaching in a skeptical age. So the first lesson that we learn is that it adds glory to the story. And the glory is not something we manufacture. We are exalting Jesus because of what his power has done. Second thing we learned, it counters plans to destroy or deny him. Let me read verse 13 again and pull that along through verse 15. Peter is speaking. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And then he talks to the crowd. He says, You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We 
are witnesses of this. The backdrop of Peter's speech was this healing of the man who had been lame from birth. This happened right at one of the gates to the temple in Jerusalem, so it was a public place. This lame man had been a fixture there day after day, begging in order to survive. People had seen him for years, begging every day. In reaction to this miracle, the crowd came running toward Peter, and they were astonished. They were surprised, and they were staring at Peter and John. So he says, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if our own power had made this man walk? This was Peter's moment to talk to them about Jesus. This was the same Jesus, he tells them, that you handed over to be killed. This is the same Jesus that you disowned before Pilate, even though Pilate had washed his hands and declared Jesus to be innocent of any crime. But the crowd nonetheless called for Jesus to be crucified. This is the same Jesus who was held captive while Barabbas was let go. Do you remember Pilate gave them a choice? He says, we have a tradition. We, we let one convicted prisoner go on this particular holiday. And the crowd began calling for Barabbas. This was the same Jesus who was sentenced and executed with the crowd's approval. Peter and John now declared that they were witnesses who saw Jesus die and who had encountered the risen Jesus Christ. Resurrection preaching and teaching trumps the plans of those who discount Jesus. Some skeptics still consider Jesus a great teacher, and they want to leave him at that level. Some skeptics still see Jesus as a wise leader and want to keep him as just a wise leader. Many skeptics still see Jesus as a great historical figure. But the resurrection sets him apart from all of the rest who are great teachers, wise leaders, or historical figures. Jesus alone came out of the tomb. I remember a conversation a number of years ago with a friend who was attending North River here who was an atheist. He'd started coming to North River to please his wife, and, and she'd asked him for years to come, and, and finally they came here together at, to North River. When he showed up, he was extremely skeptical, and he let me know he wasn't going to be an easy person to convince about anything that the Bible reported. But he was a reader, so we shared books back and forth, and he read a couple of books that I asked him to take a look at. And one day he said to me, I think I've figured out the critical path. If Jesus really came out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning, then everything else is a piece of cake. That comment has stayed with me for a long, long time. What he was saying was, I have trouble with miracles. I'm looking at some of the wise sayings of Jesus, and they resonate. But really, the most compelling thing was, if Jesus really indeed rose from the dead, he has to be listened to. And that was the critical factor in this man's journey to Jesus. He eventually became a Christian, and it was a phenomenal reality. We saw this guy in a two-year period move from hardcore atheism to embracing Jesus, and the resurrection was the most critical piece of that process. Here's the big idea for this morning. Resurrection, resurrection teaching exalts Jesus and changes lives. It is that simple. Resurrection teaching has a way of getting underneath people's skin because if that one fact is true, then that grabs attention and that gives people hope that God can change our lives too, that God can bring new life to old and tired and even hardened hearts and souls. So we've seen two things so far, that resurrection teaching adds glory to the story, that God glorified Jesus through the resurrection, and it counters the plans of people to destroy him or to deny him. 
Here's a third discovery. It brings confidence in God's promises. In verse 17, Peter is continuing with this same speech on the streets of Jerusalem, and he says, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your teachers. But that is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have. Nobody that I know likes being called ignorant. (laughs) Would you? So it's important that we look closely at what Peter is saying here. Peter knew that a great crowd of people in Jerusalem had shouted for Jesus to be crucified, and they had condoned the decision that was made that day when Pilate washed his hands and gave him over to the will of the people, and ultimately Jesus was nailed to the cross after being beaten and whipped, and then he was finally put on that cross, and and he suffered and died. Peter knew a great crowd of people had condoned that. Some of the crowd were present on this day. Some of the same people in that crowd were present on this day when the lame man was healed. And so Peter tells them that he knows that they acted in ignorance that day. This was actually a note of kindness. He's saying, you didn't know everything that I'm going to tell you this morning about who Jesus really is. If you had really known, you wouldn't have gone along with that plan. He wanted them to confront their own complicity in sending Jesus to the cross. But even more, he wanted them to consider the words of the prophets about how Jesus was to suffer and how it was foretold that he would go through this journey. Jesus' suffering and death was foretold by both Jesus himself in his public ministry and for hundreds of years by the prophets of Israel. In other words, the crowd was complicit, but all of this was God's plan all along. Then he reminded them of a handful of God's promises. In verse 18, he reminds them that it was foretold that the Messiah would suffer. In verse 22, he reversed to Moses, who foretold of a prophet who would come from the people and who would speak the words of God. And Moses says all the way back in, in, in Exodus, when this prophet comes who will be from the people, listen to him. And that whoever doesn't listen to him would be cut off from God's people. In verse 25, he reminds them of the promise that God made to Abraham that all people groups on earth would be blessed through him. So the gospel of Jesus was for people from every nation from the start. Why would Peter call them ignorant and then remind them of God's promises? He wasn't out to simply shame the people of, of Jerusalem. He wanted them to understand how the resurrection brings hope and grace for their lives too and that they needed to confront their own complicity if they were to embrace Jesus and understand the power of the resurrection for their own lives. Consider how the resurrection changes lives. In verse 15, Peter says, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. So the first thing that we see is that Peter and John were early witnesses of the risen Jesus, and they were filled with boldness. This boldness stands in contrast to how most of the disciples had run away when Jesus was arrested. Peter and John were among the first to see the evidence of the, of the empty tomb. They'd been in the presence of Jesus when he appeared with all of the disciples together. They had spent time with Jesus during the 40 days after the resurrection. And the resurrection transformed them from scared and disillusioned people to bold messengers who are willing to stand alone in the midst of a crowd and say, here's the one thing you really need to know. 
In fact, you are all complicit. And he pointed the finger. But there's still hope for you because the power of the resurrection was something that God intended to, trans your to transform your life to. So now they had embraced that they had been commissioned by Jesus to present this gospel to the world. And in Acts chapter 3, we see some of those earliest times when they were stepping out with that newfound boldness. Or consider Thomas, one of the other disciples. Thomas moved from, from doubting to worship because of the resurrection. When he saw Jesus, it was a game changer. Before, he'd been doubting that Jesus was even back, but when Jesus appeared in the room, Thomas immediately fell to his knees and said, My Lord and my God. Church history teaches us that Thomas took the gospel to Nineveh, the same city that Jonah had gone to a long time ago. It's modern-day Mosul in Iraq, and he founded a church here that still exists to this day. He founded another church in India called the, the Church of Mar Thoma that also still exists even to this day. Or you can consider Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus moved from opposition of Jesus and his followers to mission on behalf of Jesus. He gave up hunting Christians to bring the gospel to Gentile people and to Gentile kings. Now, Saul didn't see the resurrection, but he heard the voice of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus blinded Saul for three days until a man named Ananias was sent to pray for him. And Ananias told Saul that he would suffer greatly for Jesus but that he was God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the kings and rulers of the Gentile people. Or consider Stephen, one of the very first deacons who faced uh, opposition and death fearlessly because of the resurrection. Wherever the apostles went, miraculous power authenticated the arrival of the kingdom of God that had come in Jesus and the reign of Jesus that was continuing through their leadership. Here's what resurrection preaching does and why we need to talk about the resurrection not just on Easter Sunday, but at regular intervals. It tells us that no matter how broken the world is, Jesus brings hope for better days. It tells us that no matter how distant you may feel from God, Jesus has triumphed over your sin and there's great hope that, that he can continue to draw near to you and you can draw near to him. It tells us that regardless of how far you and I may have drifted, Jesus will welcome you home again if you turn around and head toward him. Resurrection teaching exalts Jesus. And when the truth of the resurrection gets out, it changes lives. And we go out in that hope that whenever we talk about Jesus, whenever we mention that we believe in him because he's the one who broke the power of sin and death when God raised him from the dead that, that day, just in the act of bringing that up, Jesus is exalted. And as that truth gets into the hearts and minds of other people, the resurrection of Jesus Christ continues to change the way people think, and it changes lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we are looking for reminders and principles from the past. And here this morning we've landed on one of them, that our faith in the resurrection of Jesus that has convinced us that he is worth following, that there is a living Lord who can be known today, equips us with hope to confront the cynicism of our age with one of the central and most profound truths of all time that if Jesus really rose from the grave, that there's great hope for us too. Lord, I ask that you will allow us to take these words and allow these words to not only fill us with hope, but with boldness so that when the time comes and we're in conversation with people who are questioning, 
that you will bring to mind the hope that we have in the power of the resurrection and that you can work with our words when we dare to share them with somebody else. I ask that you bring great fruit through this message and through our lives. And I pray that we will all see friends and family members that we care about who today scoff. Bring them to a place where they too are liberated by the living Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.